Seeking the light of God's Spirit, we turn again to that passage that we read together, the 35th chapter of Isaiah. And we're going to read just now at the beginning of the chapter, reading there at verse 1. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. All the way through the prophecy of Isaiah, there are two constantly recurring themes. On the one hand, there was the threat of coming judgment unless they repented of their sins and returned to the Lord. And of course, we know that they did not either repent or return, and eventually, judgment did come. And they were carried away captive. But of course that was not the end, for the Lord had his own purposes to fulfill. And so alongside that constant recurring theme of threat and warning, there is also this constant recurring theme of promise, that after 70 years were fulfilled, they would be brought back again, or at least a remnant of them would be brought back again, and there would be restoration to the land. If you look, for instance, in chapters 44 and 45, it speaks of Cyrus, the great emperor, who under the hand of God would facilitate that return in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. And that's really a part of the background to this 35th chapter here. The Lord is warning them that unless they cease from their constant and consistent rebellion, the land would be reduced to rubble and turned to desert. Yes, even that land flowing with milk and honey that they had taken possession of all these generations before. And of course, that's precisely what happened. Jerusalem is toppled and the place eh, becomes arid and dry and infertile and untended. But in the purposes of God, the dry, arid land and that desolate landscape would be restored again and would once more know what it was to be built up. And that was true, of course, at one level, merely of Israel as a nation. They would be restored, and the machinery and the fabric of national life would be back in place again, all, of course, in preparation for the day when Christ would be born. But it wasn't just true of Israel as a nation. It was inevitably true at the same time of the church of God within the nation. 
And that church that came down to such a low state, there as they sat by the rivers of Babylon and wept as they remembered Zion, there would be restoration. There would be days of future blessing. And they would return again. And we know that that's exactly how it developed. The church of God going in these days down into a dark place would be lifted up again. And though weeping might endure for the night, joy would come with the morning. They too would be revived. And days of spiritual desert and desolation would be replaced by better days. It's a similar picture to what we sang there a moment ago in Psalm 107, where fat lands are turned to barrenness, and then eventually the process in God's grace is reversed, and that barrenness is replaced by fruitfulness. And that's the background that we find to this wonderful 35th chapter. And here in these words, in these pictures that we have here, we recognize not merely something that applied historically, but something that continues to apply. For we see here constant and oft-repeated spiritual truths and spiritual realities. Because what he did then, physically and spiritually, he does still in the life of his church and in the life of his people and in the work of his kingdom. And as we come and we look together at these first two verses, we, we find much that is in our past and we can, we can see and we'll see that in a moment. We'll see our past and maybe, friend, you can see your own past in much of that. But we'll see as well our present. And maybe that's what you will find of particular application to yourself this morning. Your present and your present condition. But we will also see in these verses what, by God's grace, can be our future. It begins with wilderness and desert in verse 1. But even by verse 2, the desert is being transformed. And by the end of the chapter, that desert's pathless way has a way and a highway on it, the way of holiness. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and shall come in verse 10 to Zion. Now, as we come to the passage, I want us to notice Four things, four things that the Lord always does. And the first of these is simply this. He always begins with desert. He always begins with desert and he always begins with wilderness. The wilderness and the solitary place, verse 1. The desert, verse one, he always begins, doesn't he, with nothing. He doesn't come into our lives or into the work of his kingdom when we have done half the work. 
when we have laid the foundation and done all the preliminaries, he doesn't come to put the finishing touches to the work of his church or to the work of grace in the life of his people. He always comes at the beginning and he always comes and he finds always the same. It's always desert. It's always desolation. It's always nothing. This is true in all the works of God. He doesn't come and add to our efforts in order to build them up. It's true in the work of creation. He makes all things out of nothing so that the glory of it all may belong entirely to himself. And what's true in the work of creation is equally true in the work of regeneration. Because again, he begins with desert. And he, be he begins by impressing upon men and women and boys and girls that is desert that they are and that they are nothing and have nothing. Now, of course, in our folly, we imagine that we are quite, quite advanced and we are, we are a garden and we are growing all sorts of lovely, fine, good works. And then the Lord removes the scales from our eyes and we realize that there is nothing there. Unless and until the work of God begins in the heart, it is sheer desert. You know what a mirage is, children? A mirage is when you see something in the desert, actually, that's not really there. It's a trick of the mind. You might be very thirsty and you see this scene up ahead of you and there's palm trees and there's water and it's lovely. And you come near and you realize there's nothing there. Well, that's the way we are spiritually. We see in our blinded spiritual state, we see a mirage. Everything looks, looks fine, and you might feel that you're doing reasonably well. You're as good as the others and better than some. Then you come to realize, I'm nothing. I have nothing. The Lord begins. He shows you that you are nothing. He brings us down in order that he may begin to lift us up. He always begins with desert. When God begins a transforming work in the souls of men and women, he comes to a spiritual desert, a situation in which there is nothing but death and desolation on every single side. Now, why are there deserts in this world? Why are there physically places in which nothing grows and that are desolate and barren? Well, there's deserts in the world because of sin and because of the curse that came with sin. And in exactly the same way, men and women were reduced to spiritual desert, dry, arid, death, nothingness because of sin and because of the curse that came with it. Because in the heart of man, naturally, nothing of real spiritual value or virtue grows or can grow. Now, let's notice two things about deserts before we move on. A desert is a dangerous place. It's an inhospitable place. 
Now, you notice in verse 7, it speaks of dragons being there. And the desert heart of man is full of dragons. A fallen, unsaved state is a dangerous state. It's a dangerous place to be. And you have cause to praise the Lord today if he woke you once to that reality. The dragons that lurk in the heart of man in the desert that is man's fallen, unsaved state. What dragons lurk there? There's the dragon of unbelief. Chief among them. The dragon of rebellion. The dragon of hostility toward God. The dragon of pride. They've got caves in our hearts by nature, don't they? And sometimes you feel the fire from these dragons. Our friend, that's what the Lord finds when he comes to work in our life. A place where sin abounds. And while they control their, their, their territory, these dragons reduce it to a dreadfully inhospitable place for anything that is good and holy and upright and clean and pure. Oh, friends, spiritually, we need one who can slay the dragon of sin. Who can rid of the heart of the dragon and turn these caves into better places. And you know, sometimes as the gospel is preached, it reaches into that dry, arid landscape. And the dragons stir themselves and you can see them coming out as the gospel is preached. The dragon of self-righteousness, he comes to the fore. You hear the gospel being proclaimed. You hear the reality of our lost sinful condition being presented. And out comes a dragon of self-righteousness and says, well, I don't think I'm that bad. Maybe he's on the move today. We wouldn't be at all surprised. And that dragon says, leave us alone. It's like legion, isn't it? Saving faith can't live there. Or love to the Lord Jesus Christ. No fruits of the Spirit is found there. The desert is a, is a dangerous place. But it's also a lonely place. You notice in verse 1, it speaks of the wilderness as being the solitary place. Man without God is solitary. Or you'd be surrounded by a thousand people. You're solitary. And maybe, friends... Maybe that was one of the things in your own spiritual awakening which you became aware of. You had people all around you and you felt completely alone because you didn't know the Lord. Man in that solitary place is always seeking. Seeking in the wrong place often. There's a loneliness in the unconverted state. A solitariness about it all. Oh, the desert that the Lord comes and delivers from. is a lonely place. There's no heavenly father. There's no elder brother. There's no spiritual acquaintances or spiritual family. 
And if you live lonely, you will certainly die lonely. Well, maybe, maybe there's a grain of encouragement if I say again that God always begins with desert. But secondly, he always transforms that desert. He always transforms the desert. It's in his power, it's in his gift to transform. He doesn't come as a visitor who leaves it as he found it. He doesn't pass through it fast. If he comes into the desert, he changes it. And there in these centuries BC, he found his church in a desert place and in a desert state. And he transformed it. He even raises up Cyrus as an emperor to facilitate it all. And as he finds his people and as he found you, child of God, in that dangerous, lonely, solitary place, as he found you there with the dragons of sin, he transformed you, did he not? Now, specifically in these verses here, he does two things. First of all, he removes the curse. Or he reverses the curse. In the natural world, it's never removed. We spend all our time fighting against it, don't we? Everything you try to grow, you're reminded of the curse. Thorns and thistles. But in spiritual terms, the curse is removed. And the dry, arid desert becomes something else. Verse 1, the wilderness and the solitary place. It's a gladness. The desert is going to rejoice. And it's going to blossom. And it's going to grow. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly. You would think it impossible. And naturally it is impossible. But he removes the curse. The curse that brought spiritual death and spiritual confusion and spiritual darkness. And because he is able to deal with the curse. He is able in the lives of those who hitherto were blighted by it. To bring a an abundant blossoming. An abundant blossoming. And what happens to the curse? Oh, we know what happens to the curse. It is laid upon another, is it not? And it is exhausted. In all its awfulness, it is exhausted in Christ as he has made a curse. Child of God, is this what he did in your life? 
be come and he removed the effects of sin and its cursed effects. And he brought life where before there was none. He reverses the curse, but secondly, he renews life. I've touched on this already, but I, I want to underline it by itself. Where once there was only death, now there is blossoming. Remember that incident in the history of Israel where they were in the wilderness. They're murmuring as usual. They're murmuring on this occasion for water. Moses is directed to go to a certain rock. And from the rock, you remember, and children, you'll remember this, no doubt, from Sabbath school. It yielded water. Water came from it. In the desert, water flowed. And in the desert of the fallen heart of man, the transforming, renewing work of God comes. And there flows the living waters of Almighty God. And as we sang in Psalm 107, it flowed into that barren soul, the stream from the river of life, ultimately clear as crystal. Only the water of life flowing from the Lord Jesus Christ, our smitten rock, can give life. And you see the change. He mentions three locations in Palestine that were noted for beauty and fertility. They're the very opposite of desert. The glory of Lebanon, he says in verse 2, shall be given to it. Well, you know what was the glory of Lebanon? It was its cedars. These great, tall, strong trees. You look at the desert in its native state and you say, nothing will grow here. You're wasting your time even trying. But when he brings renewal, the glory of Lebanon is given to it. And they are made strong. And you see men and women who were far gone perhaps in sin. And you see life and growth. And they're reaching upwards. They're growing upwards. They've got roots. They've got strength. Not of their own doing, of course. But of his grace, Psalm 92, those that within the house of God are planted by his grace. They shall grow up and flourish all in our God's holy place. The glory of Lebanon is given to it. Did he do that for you? Did he cause you to grow and develop and reach up and reach down, rooted and built up in Christ? He found the desert of your soul and the desert of your life, a howling wilderness, a solitary place. Now there is life. Maybe you're at the other end of all of that. And you're saying, well, I'm still in the wilderness and I don't think I'll ever get out of it. You'll never get out of it by yourself, that's for sure. But the God of grace is a God who is able to transform even the most dry and arid conditions. 
and bring the cedars of Lebanon to grow. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellency of, of Carmel, a place of ordered cultivation. Once there was a little order, maybe in your life, it was disorder. But now it's the excellency of Carmel. But before you pat yourself on the back, in a moment of forgetfulness, you see what it says in the verse. The glory shall be given to it. Given to it. It's an outside agency, you see. It's a heavenly agency. And the excellency of Sharon, that was a place of rich pasture land. What a change. Where there were the caves of the dragon. Now there's the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. He always begins with desert. He always transforms the desert. Thirdly, he always brings joy in his transforming work. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. It's an unmistakable note of joy in this transformation. As he made the solitary place glad. Oh, we've seen it, haven't we? Time and again. Broken. Broken lives and broken cisterns. The gladness of God's grace coming in and transforming the desert. Maybe you're feeling downhearted today, Christian. Maybe the enemy is on your shoulder. He usually is. And you're wondering if you've got anything at all. Well, by the grace of God, you are able to say, are you not? That you are what you are, to paraphrase the apostle. And you have to acknowledge that. Oh, he did bring a, a joy and a peace into your life. A gladness. Even in the midst of, of sorrow and in the midst of the troubles of life. My peace I give unto you. Not as the word giveth, give I unto you. They rejoice with joy and singing. We're going to sing in a moment in Psalm 126. Whoso in tears are reaping time of joy, enjoy they shall. And so you shall, Christian friend. But maybe I left you behind a moment ago and maybe you were saying to me, well, yes, I, I, I must acknowledge he did bring a joy and a gladness, but I don't have much taste of it today. Because of things within and without. Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not dismissing your, your circumstance. No, not for one moment. But the word tells us that, the joy, that weeping may endure for a night. Joy will come with the morning. And a day of blessing and a day of relief and a better day will come. You know, the word says that and it says it, says it with a... A frankly, a misplaced optimism, doesn't it? 
things, things will get better. The people of God, they say it in a very different way. They will get better. The best is yet to be. And even the best that you've had here, and maybe you're looking wistfully back to times in your own spiritual experience when there was joy and gladness and singing. And you're saying, will I ever get that back again? Well, I'm not going to tell you what you'll have in this world because I don't know. But I do know what the word of God says about the future beyond the here and now for those who are in Christ. He shall wipe away their tears. And the gladness you had, even at its very sweetest, is but a pale shadow of what awaits for those who are in Christ. He always brings joy in his transformation. And part of the joy that he gives are the promises that he makes in covenant with his people. In verses 3 to 5, and I'm not, I mustn't go into them just now, but in verses 3 and 5, we have three great problems in the Christian life. You see them there in, in these verses, 3 and 4 rather. There's the fearful heart, and maybe that's how you are today. There's the weak hands, don't we know it? There's the feeble knees, don't we know it? What's the answer? Well, you see what the answer is in verse 4. Behold your God. That's the answer. Behold your God. Your God will come. Maybe your heart is fearful and your knees are weak and your hands feeble and you're able to do very little spiritually and progress very little spiritually. Well, verse 4 says, Behold your God. Don't look into yourself. There's nothing there. Nothing. He always begins with desert. He always transforms the desert. He always brings joy in his transformation. And finally, he always enjoys the glory because of that transformation. Verse 2. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see. See what? The glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. That word glory really means worth. They shall see the worth and the worthiness of the Lord. That word excellency has the idea of majesty. They shall see the majesty of our God. Every blessing flows to us from him, but we can go further than that, can't we? Every blessing flows to us from Calvary. That's the root of it all. And in order that he might save sinners from the desert and give them joy on singing, what does he do? He comes into the desert. He comes into the desert of this world 
And in this desert, he suffers and dies. He goes to the solitary place, the most solitary of all solitary places, in order that he may bring them from the solitary place. And even the father turns away as he carries the guilt and the curse, as he meets the demands of divine justice. And for three days, it looked as though it was all reduced to desert. We thought that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. But on the third day, it blossomed as the rose. And it blossomed abundantly, and it's still blossoming. And it'll never stop blossoming. World without end. And the singing that has begun will never stop. World without end. As he rises as the one who slays the dragon and who is stronger than the strong man and who binds him and releases the captives. And today he is ready to deliver souls from the desert and deliver them from the hold of dragons. And today he progresses his work of grace in the life of his people. And he prepares and fashions them for the end that he has in sight. These little groups that left captivity and headed back to Jerusalem. What a journey they must have had. It would have taken weeks and weeks to cover the ground. And they must have been doubtful and fearful. But they had their eye on Jerusalem. And they had their eye on what the Lord would do and could do. And he brought them back and he built them up. God in his glory shall appear when Zion he builds and repairs. He shall regard and lend his ear unto the needy's humble prayers. The time to favor her is set. And he will bring them home. And there will be an eternal blossoming. Oh, friend, maybe there's much against you today. But the one who is for you and who has slain the dragon and who has brought you out of that dreadful place, he will keep his word. He will fulfill his covenant. You rest in him. You behold your God, as it says in verse 2, and go on beholding him. And by his grace, you will see yet the glory of the Lord and the excellence of your God. Well, may the Lord bless his word. Unite together in prayer.
We praise thy name, O Lord, for all that thou hast done in the history of this world, in the experience of Israel, bringing them out of captivity and death and bringing them back to a land prepared for them. But a greater miracle still is the deliverance of those who are in the dry, arid desert of sin and death, being brought into a new place so that there is growth where there was death and joy where there was sorrow. Encourage thy people as they press on. Encourage them with feeble knees and weak hands and fearful hearts to behold their God and to grasp the promises that says that the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And grant, O Lord, that any who know in their own heart of hearts that they are still in the place where the dragons dwell, in the place where sin has a mastery, that they would cry for deliverance, and that even today would be a turning point in their lives and a first step towards glory itself. Bless thy word and thy day. Help us to honor it as thy day. Bless all the gatherings of thy people to the ends of the earth, covering our sin, especially in holy things. For Jesus' sake, amen.